may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Our sermon for this evening will come from Genesis chapter 9 verses 1 through 17. I encourage you to either open a Bible there and follow along or read the printed text in your worship order. We just began a series on covenants with God's people, the covenants that God makes with his people last week. And we looked at the covenant of grace that God made with Adam. And this week we begin by uh, in our text by looking at a covenant of grace that God renews with Noah. And so I encourage you to follow along in the reading of the story today. What I'll do is after we read the text, I will go back and give you some context and tell you what led up to these events. And probably you can guess by now some of the things that uh, that have happened because of the songs that we've been singing that mention floods and waters and the scripture readings that we have read and recited together that also mention floods and waters. And so you'll see that that is the context for the story that we'll see this evening. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word and open your hearts, open your ears to hear God's word. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And that is the word of the Lord. 
May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. So let's dive right into our story. Here's the context of what's going on here. After the fall, when the Lord God cut the covenant with Adam and Adam's descendants, he drove man and woman out of the Garden of Eden. They were fruitful, they were multiplying, and each and every child born to them by natural generation bore the consequences of their father's sin. And what I mean by that, in part, is that not only were they born outside the garden paradise, they were also born under the influence of Adam's sin and had the same inclinations towards sin and evil that their father Adam had. And over the course of many, many years, as you read the early chapters of Genesis, you see that there is a kind of moral decay and spiritual devolution of the human race. And it becomes unbearable even to the Lord. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth. And he saw that the intentions of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time or continually evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so he decided that he would blot out man whom he had created on the face of the earth and blot out animals and creeping things and the birds of the air. For he says, I am sorry that I made them. Now, in context, we discover that what was happening in those days is you have a kind of rampant marital corruption and there were uh, acts of physical violence and there was sexual confusion. These are the major sins mentioned prior to the flood. These are the things that provoked God to judge the world. How did man get to that point? Well, man got to that point because they were also under the influence of the serpent. And under the influence of the serpent, man began to doubt and deny and disobey the word of God, just as their forefathers had done in the garden. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5 when he says, death entered the world through the sin of one man and then death spread to all men because all men sin. And so in the early stages or early chapters of Genesis, we see the increase of sin on the earth. And if you're reading that with a sensitive heart and mind, you might be inclined to say, well, no wonder God's wrath was kindled. No wonder God decided to rain down hell from heaven and put an end to all of this mess. And if you pay close attention to what God said about this, It's no wonder that God breathed a sigh of lament. It's no wonder that his heart was vexed over what he saw. Now, I want to be clear about something here. This does not mean and by any stretch of the imagination that God was taken by surprise by anything that he saw and heard coming from the race of men. God was not taken by surprise by the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, nor was he taken by surprise by the spiritual uh, decay and devolution that you see happening from the fall to the flood. It's not as if God didn't see it coming as if it all took him by surprise. No, he saw it coming and now he's acting 
accordingly. He's acting justly and rightly when it comes to pass. And so before he opens the floodgates, you're reading the story, something very interesting happens here. God actually takes comfort from the midst of chaos. He takes comfort from the midst of chaos. And that comfort comes in the form of a man named Noah, whose name means comfort. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when you go back and read, you'll see that Noah becomes like this shining light in the darkness. He is a blameless man in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Throughout the course of Scripture, as you piece together the the bio of Noah, you learn that he was a preacher of righteousness who came from a long line of preachers like Enoch, who walked with God and then one day was no more. And like Seth, who moved people in his day to call on the name of the Lord. Well, Noah's ministry was not as fruitful as Seth's or as Enoch's. But there's Noah standing against the rising tide of moral decay and spiritual decline in his generation, preaching righteousness to a people who are entirely, utterly unrighteous and totally depraved. Now, some some pastors like to tell this story and they like to imagine that Noah was preaching righteousness while he built the ark and that he was trying to persuade as many sinners as possible to join him in this building project and to find their way into the ark. I used to preach a story like that as well, and it makes for a very compelling work of imagination. But the main problem with that is it doesn't line up with the text It doesn't line up with what the story actually tells us. Read the the story carefully and you'll see that God told Noah, everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. Period. Full stop. End of story. The book of Hebrews puts a sharper point on this when it says that by faith, Noah being warned about uh, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, referring to the flood in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this act, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so it was that God established the covenant of grace with Noah and his household. O. Palmer Robertson says in his book, Christ of the Covenants, the righteousness of the single head of the family served as the basis for including his whole household in the ark. It's remarkable. Men, can I say something to you just as an aside? Look at Noah and you'll see that Noah prioritized the salvation of his family. He didn't just prioritize his family, but the salvation of his family. There was nothing more important in Noah's life than his family coming into the ark and coming into the covenant promises of God. These are serious matters and serious times. What was looming out before them was that God was about to unleash this weapon of mass destruction 
called the flood. And he was about to unleash it against the culture of the serpent. By means of this catastrophic catastrophic event, the Lord God intended to redeem a people for himself. To remake the world and reestablish humanity. To redeem and restore humanity. So you fast forward to where we picked up today and you see that after the storm, the Lord God takes Noah out of the ark and he puts him into this new world that he had made, just like he had taken Adam and put him into a garden. And God gives Noah all of these gifts, doesn't he? He gives him everything. Not just fruits and vegetables, but now he gets meats. I give you everything. It's grace upon grace for Noah. Noah becomes this new Adam, this new man, the shadow type of the last Adam. Here he is in this new world that God has made. And what is Noah's first response to all of these events? We've all seen those funny movies and clips. Maybe you've had personal experience yourself where you're involved in like a very scary plane ride or a boat ride and you finally get to solid ground. And what is the first thing you want to do when you get out of that plane or out of that boat? You want to bow down and kiss the ground because you're finally in a safe place. You expect Noah to do something like that. But what he does is quite different because, again, this is a man who's found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And his response to all of this is to worship God. This is his first response to the new conditions of the world is to worship the Lord God. And like his like his ancestors, he builds an altar to the Lord. He offers sacrifices on the on the altar to the Lord. He turns these things into smoke. And as they rise up, representing Noah and his family, these the smoke is rising up to the Lord. The scriptures say that when the Lord smelled this pleasing aroma, God was pleased to his heart by Noah's offering. And the Lord said in his heart, never again. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Seems like a strange thing to put with that never again. You'd you'd almost expect to hear, never again will I curse the ground because now man is right and sin is gone and he is new and we don't have any more problems. But that's not what God says. Never again will I curse the ground For even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because this is grace upon grace upon grace. This is a covenant promise that God makes in the face of human depravity. Gerhardus Voss says in his biblical theology, commenting on this, that God knows that the catastrophic curses of the flood and things like the flood can restrain evil, but they cannot uproot and eradicate sin from the human heart. And so dealing with our sin problem requires God to do something even more extreme than something like a flood. Now, some of you already know what that extreme thing is, don't you? But until that extreme thing comes about in the story of the scriptures, for now we are left with God reestablishing with Noah and his household the covenant of grace. And with all other creatures and the rest of God's creation. Now, this covenant comes with a certain set of stipulations and sanctions, which is a fancy way of saying that God has 
given man some principles and he's given man some permission to do things and some prohibitions. In other words, this comes with a set of expectations. And here's what God wants man to do. He blesses Noah. First thing you see in chapter nine, God blesses Noah. And that means that God has received Noah into his fellowship and he is not cursing him. This stands in sharp contrast to what happened in the flood. And then God gives these principles, permissions and prohibitions. Keep that in mind. As God's image bearer, man is to procreate and to propagate the human race. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is a an echo of what God had given to Adam and Eve. As God's image bearer, man is to promote and to protect life among all of the creatures of our God and King. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon all the creatures of the world. And so God has elevated man above all of these other creatures. As God's image bearer, man is to punish life destroyers by putting them to death. This is the part of the covenant that disturbs many people. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But keep in mind that these are the principles that God lays out. He gives him a set of permissions. Permissions. These are things that Noah and his household and the rest of us are free to enjoy. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. It's pretty exciting, right? I mean, if you like meat, if you like tacos, if you like steak and burgers, if you like chicken, if you like bacon, this is good news for you because God has given every moving thing that lives as food for you. If you like green plants, you're free to eat those as well, but you're no longer restricted to a fruit and vegetable diet. So thank God for the flood and for his grace after the flood, right? Now, I realize that there is a whole movement of people who are for the ethical treatment of animals out there. And they have certain ethical standards that they would like to bind and apply to the rest of us. But I just want to push back on those people a little bit and say that those standards that they have are not rooted and grounded in the revelation of God. They are simply rooted and grounded in their own personal preferences and experiences. In other words, their ethics are not rooted and and grounded in truth, but in unreality. There is a world of difference between man and animal. And God has elevated man above animals and given him glory and honor and crowned him with a kind of liberty and dignity and responsibility that he did not give the animal kingdom. And man is to rule over them and to rule over them responsibly. So God has given The gift of fruits and vegetables and meat. And as the Apostle Paul will say later in the scriptures, these should be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, none of you are required to eat meat. If that's not your thing, if you prefer just to eat vegetables and fruits, 
you're free to do so. But you're not free to prevent other people from eating meat if that's what they wish to do. For God has established this for us. And we want to keep in mind, even when it comes to things like food and drink, that it is God and not man who sets the limits on what we can and cannot eat and drink. It is God and not man who does that. That leads us to a couple of prohibitions here. The covenant says you shall not eat meat, eat flesh with its life in it, that is with its blood. Seems like a strange thing to say, but it goes without saying that we, by and large, eat our meat without blood in it. Hunters and butchers for years have made a point of draining the blood out of meat before they wrap it up, package it and sell it to us, right? So man has been prevented from doing this, but why? What's the rationale? God says, because the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And the life blood of every creature is sacred to the Lord. And so you want to be careful about this. There are some people who jokingly will say when they go hunting, I'm going out to murder a deer. I'm going out to murder a wild hog. In reality, you're not murdering an animal. For no one can murder an animal. Murder is only committed when one man unjustly takes the life of another man. The covenant does not explicitly say here, thou shalt not murder. God will say that later. But as we're reading between the lines, guess what it does say? Implicitly. It says implicitly that God will require a reckoning or an accounting of man's lifeblood. So here we have a warning and a threat that mankind will give an account to God for the way we treat our brothers, our neighbors, our fellow image bearers. For all the blood that mankind sheds on the earth, there will be a reckoning. God will want to know who shed it, why it was shed, where it was shed, and man will give an account to God. So the question is, what should happen if one man does in fact murder another man. In other words, what should happen if people begin to act in this new world the way they acted in the old world before the flood? And that leads us to a very difficult part of this covenant, which has to do with punishments. These are the punishments, the sanctions. It is written... Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And what is God's rationale for this? His rationale is, for God made man in his own image. Now we have seen that man, as God's image bearer, must promote and protect life. And one way man expects, or one way God expects man to do this is by punishing manslayers, murderers, life destroyers. And how is man made in the image of God supposed to deal with a murderer? According to this covenant, by putting them to death. And so we see in Genesis 9 that God himself established what we have come to call capital punishment. Now, that's a whole discussion that we could have, and I don't want to get into all of the details of it here, but if you want to have the discussion, we need to have that discussion. But before we have it, here's what I want you to hear, that God is telling us through this covenant that to take the life of an image bearer is to take something from God that does not belong to you. 
Murder is cosmic theft. That is why Jesus will say later in his life and ministry, give to Caesar the things that bear the image of Caesar, but give to God the things that bear the image of God. So you pay your taxes to Caesar. And you better do that by Tuesday, by the way, PSA. But you give your heart Your body, your mind, your soul to God. Because that's where he has placed his image. And he's placed it on every one of his creatures made in his image. Male and female. Now someone might ask, well, why is it wrong and evil for one image bearer to murder another? And yet right and good for image bearers to put to death an image destroyer? That is a very fair question to ask. It's a question that deserves a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, conversation and coffee and perhaps other adult beverages. But the short answer I want to give you now is simply because God said so. God sets the standards for right and wrong, not man. The longer answer that I'll give you is that there is a fundamental difference between taking the life of an innocent person who desires life and taking away the life of a guilty person who despises life. Murder is a violent assault on man and on the image of God in man. It is a kind of iconoclasm. As Harry Potter series will teach us, it rips the soul apart. It's a violation against nature. But it's deeper than that and even worse than that. R.C. Sproul explains in his book, The Promises of God, that God's rationale for requiring the death of the murderer is that in a very real sense, the person who raises his hand to slay a human being is making an assault not just against a fellow human, but against God because every human being bears God's image. When someone kills a human being, he kills someone who is bearing the image of God. God is saying that to be made in his image is so sacred. It is so holy that if someone wantonly destroys an image bearer of God, that person forfeits his right to life and is to be executed. And so God established the death penalty for us. And it's that covenant that we see here that establishes for us the sanctity of life until the end of the world. I want to remind you that one of the major reasons God opened the floodgates of judgment against the world and Noah's generation was because the world was filled with violence. And the world was filled with violence because generation after generation allowed violence to increase and to grow. All of this started with the serpent's lies in the garden. Jesus says of the serpent that the devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The violence continued with Cain's murder of Abel and then Lamech's killing of another man. And one murder led to another and another. And the next thing you know, the world is soaked in blood and shrouded in death. And in the covenant of grace, God establishes for man capital punishment, a death penalty that is intended to deter, to protect and defend life, deter evil. 
there's another reason for this that I want you to see. Suffice it to say for now that capital punishment, as described in this covenant, capital punishment for murder described in this covenant is also a part of the big story of the perpetual conflict between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, between the serpent and the Savior. Here's a way to think of it. When God's image bearers punish the devil's image destroyers, they are confronting Satan and they are crushing the serpent in small yet very significant ways. And it is in this way that the Lord God actually preserves the human race until the coming of the seed of woman in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to drive home the point here that the Lord God is showing Noah and his sons that there are real world consequences, both positive and negative, for our decisions and our actions. So from the very beginning, we see that God's sovereignty establishes human responsibility. Now, that was a very heavy part of the story. And it's probably a part of the story that some of you did not know. So if you take a deep breath, a sigh of relief, we'll move into a part of the story that you all know. And it's actually a lighter part of the story. God gives with His covenants signs and seals. Signs and seals. So he has the words of the covenant, but then he gives a picture, a sign and seal, something visible to go along with it. And the two things come together and that forms the covenant union, the covenant relationship. So it's in this part of the story that we see God telling Noah and his sons, I'm going to give you a sign, a sign to verify that the covenant I'm making with you is legitimate. And that I'm going to keep it. That I'm never again going to cut off by the waters of a flood all of the earth and all of life in the earth. And what God does is He sets His bow in the cloud. And it's interesting that the word rainbow is not used, but we understand it to be rainbow. The Hebrew word that's used here is a word that refers to a warrior's bow. And so what God is saying to Noah and his sons is, I'm taking my bow, the bow that I use to wage war, the bow that I use to wage war in the flood. I'm going to take that weapon of war and I'm going to hang it up. It's retired now. I'm going to hang it up in the sky. I'm going to hang it in the clouds. And every time it rains and every time the clouds come and I see that bow in the cloud, I'm going to remember my covenant with you. It's a memorial that I'm going to keep my covenant And every time you see that bow in the cloud, you can remember and rest assured that I'm going to keep my covenant. So when the rain begins to fall, I don't want you thinking that, oh, here we go again. The floods are going to come and wipe out all of the earth. No, you don't have to run looking for an ark. You don't have to get up in a high tower or climb a tree. You can trust that I'm not going to flood the earth again and destroy it. And so he hangs his bow in the clouds as a covenant sign between himself and the creation. God has retired this weapon of his warfare. Now, as you're going to see through this series, 
As with other covenant signs and seals in this series, the rainbow in the clouds is a covenant sign from God to man. It's from God to man and it's for God. And while we enjoy the benefits of this covenant sign, we need to keep in mind that it is not our sign to God, but it's God's sign to man. I want to say this for the benefit, uh, especially of our younger folks here and especially of our children. A lot of confusion nowadays about the significance of a rainbow. When I was a kid, anyone could color a rainbow and all it meant is you were coloring a rainbow. But we live in a world now where people have hijacked the covenant sign of God and they've tried to use it for their own purposes. So can I just say, kids and your parents who are listening, The rainbow is not a dainty symbol of sexual liberation and gender confusion. That is not what the rainbow is. It's not what it signifies or means. It is a sign of God's promise to you that He is never going to wreck and destroy the world the way He did in Noah's day. The other thing I want you all to know about the rainbow is If you ever get to the end of a rainbow, you will not find a pot of gold. Try as you might, but you will find something much better than gold. You will find the promises of God's grace. And that's where you go. So God has put this sign in the sky to remind us that he loves us and he cares for us. And he's always going to take care of us. He's going to keep his promises to us. Now, what does all this have to say about Jesus? The covenant of grace which God made with Noah finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. And here's how. Were you to go back through the story that we have reflected on today, you would find hints and signs and you would find flashes and shadows of Jesus Christ even in this story and here's how for starters Jesus Christ was baptized in the flood of God's wrath for his people he is the one who was offered up to God as a burnt offering on the cross And when the Lord God smelled the pleasing aroma of Jesus' sacrifice, the Lord God said from his heart, I will never again curse those for whom Jesus died. He became a curse for us that we might be blessed by God. We also see that Jesus declared all foods clean. Doesn't seem like a remarkable thing to do, but it's an echo and then a fulfillment of this covenant. Jesus declared all foods clean when he said that whatever goes into you from the outside cannot defile you. It doesn't make you dirty or profane. It doesn't enter your heart. It goes into your stomach, passes through a digestive system and then is expelled from your body. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God with gratitude in your hearts. 
And the next thing we see is that Jesus was an innocent man who was rejected by his people and traded for a murderer. He was betrayed and murdered by stiff-necked covenant breakers in his generation. Who, like the people of Noah's generation, always resisted the Holy Spirit. Jesus experienced an unjust capital punishment at the hands of wicked men who had perverted God's law and God's provision for dealing with criminals. They had a corrupt legal system. But he experienced this unjust capital punishment at the hands of wicked men so that he might justly execute capital punishment upon the serpent and crush his head once for all. And then finally, we see that Jesus was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God. And around his throne, there is a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald that shines like a stained glass window with all the radiance and the brilliance of light refracting through precious, translucent, colorful stones. In other words, when we see Jesus exalted to his throne at the right hand of God, around him is A warrior's bow, which is still hung in the sky. His promise is still kept and still unbroken. And last but not least, we see that Jesus is in fact remaking all things, making all things new. That God has preserved creation from the time of Noah forward so that Jesus can remake all things. And there will be a new heaven And a new earth and God's dwelling place will be with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things shall pass away. God has reestablished his covenant of grace with Noah and his descendants and all who came after them. And we reap the benefits of that covenant of grace even today. A grace that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you haven't explored who he is, if you haven't sought out how to know him, we urge you with all your heart to do that. And we would love to help you if at all possible. But know that whatever God is doing in the world, he does ultimately for the glory of God in Christ and for the good of all the people who are in Christ. And we plead with you with all of our hearts that you will turn from your sin, put your trust in Jesus and come and be a part of this covenant people whom God loves. Let us pray together.